So this is our second part of the introduction to Romans. And I've tried to get us to think about how we should be reading Romans, how we should approach the text. And I've argued that we need to attend to three factors for interpretation. First, we need to attend to the historical and cultural background. We are reading a letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago on a different continent in a different language to a different people. So there are some significant differences between our world and our life and the Romans' world and life. And actually, we're really thankful for a lot of those differences. This guy Nero was ruling the world at that time, and he's not in power anymore. So we're really thankful for changes like that. But we have to try to get into that world a little bit and to hear Romans as the original readers would have heard it. You know, to investigate the historical cultural background, we have to approach it from two angles. From one angle, we have to look at material outside of what the Bible gives us. We need to read history. We need to put things on a timeline. But then from a different angle, we can pick up on clues in the text that show us what was going on in the Roman church at the time Paul was writing. We're going to look at both of those things this morning. But then second, we need to pay attention to the literary features, what's actually written in the text. We want to pay careful attention to what it actually says. And then finally, we want to attend to the theological message. What, what is Paul getting at in this letter? And I tried to make the point that um, because Romans is such a long letter, we tend to get lost along the way, and it's hard for us to keep in mind the historical setting and Paul's larger theological message. So where we can listen to or read Romans 1 through 14 without thinking at all of what was going on in the church at Rome, they couldn't do it. Their life was their life, so they heard everything in light of what was going on there. So I encourage some of you to read Romans 12 through 16 and then start at Romans chapter 1 and read up through the rest of the book, 1 through 11, so you could have those features in mind. I won't ask if any of you did that or not, uh, but I'd recommend it again. Read through Romans, but start in chapter 12 and finish the book and then go back to Romans chapter 1 and read up through 11. Last week, we considered why Paul would have written this letter. Even if the, the situation at the Roman church was neutral, nothing negative was going on, why would Paul have written this letter to them? As a reminder, Paul wrote the letter first to explain why he had not visited. The capital of the known world, a church composed primarily of Gentiles, would have expected the apostle to the Gentiles to come to visit them. But he had not, so he explains why. Second, he wrote to them to strengthen and encourage them in the faith, to share in the gospel with them. Third, he wrote to clarify his teaching. Some people were misrepresenting them, representing his teaching, so he wanted to set the, the matter straight. But then finally, he wrote to them to raise support for his ministry. He, he needed to raise money for poor Christians in Jerusalem. He was planning to go up to Spain, and he wanted the Roman church to be a base for ministry. So he wrote this letter for all of these reasons, and it's pretty clear in the text. But now we need to shift our attention to why the Roman church needed this letter. What was going on in their life that they would need Paul to write what he wrote to them in this letter? 
So to do this, let's consider the larger historical setting of the church in Rome, and then we'll move on to the particulars of the Roman church as we find them in Romans. So I want to walk you through a timeline to help place everything that's going on here. And I've put only the briefest of events on this timeline. But if you're thinking of early church history, we can place Jesus' crucifixion in around 30 AD. Okay, so if Jesus is crucified in 30 AD, he died, three days later he rose, and then he spent some time with his disciples, and then he ascended. He, he left them behind. Well, 50 weeks after the crucifixion, um, there's this day called Pentecost. Now, if you're reading in Acts, you'll come across this in Acts chapter 2. The apostles are preaching sermons. They're, they're preaching in languages not known to them. They're speaking in tongues. There, there are mass conversions. People follow Jesus at this day of Pentecost. And uh, people leave Jerusalem after this, and they take their newfound faith in Jesus across the globe. Now, as a side note for those of you who like some Bible trivia, Pentecost was a regularly recurring holiday for Jews. So we might think of it as the day the church was formed with the outpouring of the Spirit, but for Jews, this holiday was celebrated year after year after year. It's called Pentecost because it occurred 50 weeks after Passover. So Pent, you hear that, you know, Pentagon 5, um, five 50 weeks after Passover, this would take place. And they would celebrate the early bar barley harvest at this festival every, every year. And I, I think what is going on here is God is being creative and um, he is providing the first fruits of the fields that Jesus said were ready for harvest. So when Jesus said, look, the fields are, are ready for harvest, the first part of that takes place at Pentecost when there are mass numbers of individuals who convert to Christianity, who follow Jesus and then spread Christianity across the known world. One place that Christianity goes to is Rome. So pretty soon after Pentecost, we imagine that Jews are meeting in the synagogue in Rome and telling everybody about this Messiah Jesus, and that some people end up following Jesus, and they spread the message of Jesus to their Gentile neighbors as well. Um, that, that is how the church has started in Rome. Okay, we don't know how soon after Pentecost that happened, but we think probably pretty soon. The problem, though, is that not everyone would have been happy to follow Jesus. As we've been reading through Acts in our morning services, we've read about riot after riot and problem after problem as there are some Jews who really want to follow Jesus, and then there are other Jews who get really upset about it because they see Jesus as erasing their history and tradition in their past. More than that, the, the message of Jesus is saying that any person can become the people of God. You don't have to be Jewish. Non-Jewish people can also become the people of God. That, that was a radical message for Israel and for Jews of that day. I've tried to think of the best way to illustrate how this would work for us, and I can't come up with any good illustrations. So I'm going to give you two subpar illustrations. Um, the first one is I want you to imagine that you woke up and all over the news and all over your social media was the announcement 
that the government leaders of the United States and of Great Britain had decided were going to become one nation under one rulership. And in fact, we're going to adopt the British monarchy as our system of government. If, if most of us woke up and saw that in the news, we would be irate. We would say things like, but like our whole history of who we are as a nation is like getting free from them. Like we don't want to be part of Britain. We want it to become free. That's why we're the United States of America. They don't have the same story as us. They don't have the same government as us. How could we possibly share a life together? It just wouldn't work. They'd be getting rid of our holidays. How can we celebrate the, the Declaration of Independence if we're now no longer independent from Britain? I, I think that might be a little bit of what many Jews would have felt when now, instead of worshiping, uh, you know, observing the Sabbath on a Saturday, they, they're, they're worshiping on a Sunday. Instead of following all of the practices of Torah and all of the traditions of their ancestors, they're now like combined with a group of people who are not doing that at all. So their natural response is to try to enforce these Jewish practices on these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people. You, you can sense how it would be hard for these two groups to become one. Okay, let, me, let me give you another analogy that might hit in a different way. Imagine that you showed up at our next family discussion forum. And as you walked into the room, there were like, a hundred people that you didn't know who were also in the room. And I got up and announced that we are merging with another church. And it's just going to happen. This isn't something we vote on. Um, we're, we're merging with another church. And in fact, this happens to be an Anglican church. And so we're going to adopt wearing robes on Sundays. Um, you're going to refer to me as father, perhaps, instead of just plain old Aaron. Um, and we're going to have all sorts of things that attend our worship service, elements that we don't currently have. Well, I, I think probably if, if we did that, um, most of you would probably find it, just say, I'm finding another church. Like, I'm, I'm not going to do this. I, I am not going to change what I am comfortable with in my Christian practice to accommodate these outsiders. And even worse, there are way more of them than there are of us. So, of course, their traditions and practices are going to become the dominant force at our church. Do, do you feel, or can you imagine how uncomfortable you might feel with that? That is probably very close to what many Jews and Gentiles would have felt as they're gathering together for worship. The Gentiles are being asked to set aside a lot, all of their pagan practices. No longer can they eat meat in an idol temple, e even though that's where all of their business took place. Many of them would have lost their jobs because of that. And, and many Jews now are being told, um, guess what? Like, you're going to have a church meal with other people, and it's not going to be a kosher meal, and that's okay. There would be a lot of tension that's hard for us to feel and communicate. But what I can guarantee you is that the kind of tension they felt and the kind of difference and disagreement they would have had would be deeper and, and more palpable than any disagreement you've ever felt with another Christian in this room. 
So imagine the time maybe you've disagreed with what I've said most in a sermon, or, or when you've looked at the parenting practice of another family, or you've looked at the conscience standard of someone else here, and it rubbed you completely the wrong way. However uncomfortable you felt there, it pales in comparison to how uncomfortable these people would have felt in their gatherings together. I, I hope I'm getting this across. Um, Paul's solution was not for them to find a different church, but instead for them to grow up into Christ together. So, but these are the kind of divisions and factions that are taking place. But it gets worse. By AD 49, the, the Roman ruler Claudius put out an order expelling all Jews from Rome. So imagine that there's a, there are house churches in Rome. They're probably primarily Jewish at this point. So Jewish customs are probably the dominant culture there. But then all of the Jews are expelled from Rome. So there's this, Jew, this historian who says that um, Claudius expelled them all for debating about this figure, Christus. Well, it's probably just a corrupt form of the name Christos, which we translate Christ. You can all hear it together. So probably what was happening is all of the riots and debates that we read about in the book of Acts also were happening in Rome, and Claudius didn't want any of it. So he kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. So who's left to run the churches in Rome? Only Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians who never embraced Torah practices and Jewish traditions. Well, by 54 AD, Claudius dies, and Jews are allowed to return to Rome, and a lot of them did, because that's where they own property. That was their homeland. That's where they grew up. So they come back, but they come back to church for the first time, where now they are the minority group, where their traditions and their practices are not the dominant force in the church. In the Roman Gentiles who have become comfortable in the church and in their positions of leadership and authority are not being very welcoming to these Jews who want to do church in a different way. That's, that's the historical situation. It's during this time that Paul wrote his letter and sent it to Rome. Paul is probably in Corinth at the time, and he, he sends the letter with this lady named Phoebe who lives in what's essentially a suburb of Corinth. She takes the letter to this church, and everything that Paul says in this letter is going to be heard in that context. So when you start reading through Romans and you see all of these issues about Jews and Gentiles, this is not some like hypothetical situation out there. This is the lived experience and the deep division and uncomfortableness of daily life in their church. So that's a general historical setting. But at the very end of this letter, Paul moves to talk more specifically about what was going on in the house churches there. So not just this larger dynamic, but the actual events that were taking place in this church. He lays these things out for us in Romans 14, or in Romans 14 and 15. And he essentially talks about two different groups of people. So I'm going to try to describe them here. The language that he uses are those who are weak in the faith and then those who are strong. But I I want to fill out those categories a little bit more. I want to suggest that these two groups of people took different approaches 
to what they thought it would look like to be faithful Christians in Rome right then. Some Christians said, we want to look at the example of Daniel while he was in exile, and we want to live like Daniel. And other people said, well, we want to live like Jeremiah lived when he was in exile. And these are two very different pictures. So, so let me fill this in a little bit more. If you think back to the story of Daniel and his friends, when they're taken into Babylon, and, and of course now Christians are talking about Rome as the new Babylon, right? It's, it's a new place where you get exiled. Well, people would read stories like Daniel where, where he would refuse to eat the, the king's meat and drink the king's wine. He chose a diet of vegetables only. Well, if you start thinking about that a little more, you'll realize that he's going beyond the Torah, the, the Old Testament law, because the Old Testament law didn't require vegetarianism, but it did limit certain kinds of meat. So Daniel and his friends, in order just to be extra safe, in order not to eat any bad meat, just chose not to eat any meat at all. So I would call these the Torah plus subscribers. These are the people who go the Torah and beyond because they want to be like Daniel. They, they want to take a conservative, uh, safe approach to living in exile. So they only eat vegetables. They don't drink wine. They're particular about observing holy days. And, and these practices go beyond what's stipulated even in the Old Testament law. So, so it's a Daniel-like vision for life in exile. The problem is that these Daniel-like Christians in the church at Rome were being judgmental to anyone who didn't adopt a Daniel-like approach to living in Rome. They were judgmental and they were argumentative about it. Paul calls them out for this. On the other side, though, you have Jeremiah-like Christians. So these people would read a text in like Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, where Jeremiah is saying, look guys, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. You're going to be here for a really long time. So don't live like you're in exile. Like build a home, marry, have kids, pursue flourishing. Pursue the flourishing of your city because in their prosperity, you will find prosperity. So, so don't live like you're in exile and you're going to get to go home soon. This is where God has you. So make the most of it. So that there are Christians in Rome saying, we want to adopt the Jeremiah-like approach to Christianity because we're not going to be leaving Rome in, for any reason. Our lives are here, so we want to live fully in a Christian way here. They rejected some of these Old Testament traditions. They did eat meat. They drank wine. Their problem, though, was that they were condescending to the Daniel-like Christians, and they were really unwelcoming to them, especially these Jews who had been kicked out and who are now returning back to the house churches. So the situation in these churches is really divided. And interestingly enough, Paul makes clear that he is on the Jeremiah-like side of things. So when he's writing this letter, when these people get this letter from Paul, you can imagine that some of them are going to hear it and feel threatened by Paul in some places and encouraged by Paul in others, and the same would be true for the other side. But for the most part, I think the Daniel-like Christians would feel like they were being targeted through most of the letter. 
Uh, let me give you a little bit of an analogy. I imagine if you were in a church that was like on the down low talking about splitting because there were two different like w ideas and everyone had formed into groups. We'll make it really silly and say this church wanted to split because of the color of the carpet. Well, imagine that this is going on in the background and you show up to church one day and the pastor has invited a guest speaker. And from the very start, he tar starts talking about Christian unity. Well, if, if the church split is something that's like a real life potential thing, everything you're hearing him say throughout the whole letter is going to address the real life situation you have right now. You won't be thinking, oh, this is a nice theological category that Christians can be unified. You, you would be feeling like this, this, is, this guy is speaking directly into whatever is going on in our church right now. And if you liked the color of the carpet the pastor wanted, you would be happy that he brought an outside speaker in to set everyone else right. And if you didn't like what the pastor wanted, you would probably feel like this guy is being nefarious and manipulative by getting someone from the outside just to reinforce his opinion. Well, I don't think that Paul's letter was received in a unified sort of way. I, I think people would read this and feel very challenged um, from the very start. So what does Paul say to these people? Does he tell them to divide into separate churches? You know, if, if it were a modern situation, probably the, the church advisor would say, why don't you just split into two churches and brand yourselves as the Daniel-like church and the Jeremiah-like church? So you, you could have like pita church, where we only eat vegetables at our meals. And you, you could have the no restrictions ever church. You know, and, and we just do whatever we want. And, and lean into that, brand it, make it who you are. Paul will have none of that because he says that God has united you together. And in fact, none of you have been placed as the judge over the other. Instead, God is the judge. Each of you will stand before God on the final day and God will make each of you able to stand. These divisions should not divide the church forever. Instead, they should work towards unity and harmony and love, even as differences remain, because ultimately they're accountable to God. This is a message that nobody likes to hear when it comes to, to churches. I don't like to hear it because I like things going my way. But Paul is speaking to this church in a way that reinforces you are not the Lord of the church. Christ is. So therefore, you need to relate to one another in welcoming, loving ways, despite your differences. Okay, so, so this is the, the whole situation. We probably need to think hard about what that looks like for our church as we go through this entire Roman series. What does it look like for us to adopt the notion that Christ is the Lord of the church and I'm not? We might ask though, how is it that Paul can expect people who are so different in these very visible and important ways to live together in harmony? What's, what's the solution to this problem? Because Paul doesn't demand that everyone start doing the same thing. Instead, he says something like, everyone should be convinced in their own mind. Not everyone should do the exact same practice.
practice. So how is it that people who are very different can be unified and loving and in harmony even though they're different? There's a solution, and it's, I think, the gospel solution. Paul gives a gospel solution to this problem, and he actually starts giving it from the very beginning of the letter. Um, so hang, hang with me here. The gospel solution is the reality of the resurrection, or, or what I want to talk about as the logic of the resurrection. The logic of the resurrection is what will allow people who are different to give up their preferences and to give up demanding that everything should be the way they want it to be. The the logic of the resurrection allows people to do this. Um, So what what does that mean? How, How does this help us? The logic of the resurrection is that death and sin and disharmony is ironically and paradoxically defeated by death. Death is always defeated by death. Embrace of death promises life. All right, keep keep tracking because this will get filled out as we go. Think of the way that Jesus talks about resurrection and death and life. Jesus taught his disciples that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. So Jesus points us to this logic of the resurrection that's written into the fabric of the created universe. We know from our experience of the world that for something to truly live, for something to be fruitful, it has to die first. This is a basic fundamental reality of the way that God created the world. But it's also a basic fundamental reality of being a follower of Jesus. Jesus proved this with his own death and resurrection. How would Jesus attain true life forever? Through death. How will Jesus' followers attain the fullness of life? It will be through death as well. That's what he told his disciples. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The, The basic point is, that there's a way of loving our, our shadowy existence of life that keeps us from ever embracing the fullness of life. Let me continue to fill this out with what Paul is saying. Paul, Paul is trying to teach his listeners that the basic message of the gospel cannot be separated from the logic of the resurrection. So he opens up his letter talking about the gospel, which is that Jesus was appointed to be this powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. This is his summary of the gospel. Jesus died and he was raised again. Now when we hear that, we might think the way that we live according to the logic of the resurrection or or the way that we embrace the logic of the resurrection is by saying something like, well, I'm willing to die for Christ if I need to. I'll I'll be a martyr for Jesus because I know that I'll be raised just like Jesus was. I, I want to say that that is true. And in many times, in many places, Christians have embraced the logic of the resurrection in a way that led to their martyrdom. And if ever we are facing a situation where where we 
would be facing death to remain faithful for Jesus, that's what the logic of the resurrection would mean in that instance. For most of us, though, no one's put a gun to our head and tried to get us to deny the faith. So, so is the logic of the resurrection only good for that situation? I want to say no, though it is good for that situation. Another situation or way that we might think about embracing the logic of the resurrection is this. Okay, Jesus died and rose again. And everybody on planet earth is going to die sometime. And I want the resurrection life of Jesus. So the way to get eternal life is to connect to Jesus who secured it through me through his own resurrection. And in that way, we say the logic of the resurrection gives us a hope whenever death comes. It gives us a future, a future hope. That also is true. And I think most Christians are really good about embracing the logic of the resurrection in that way. When a loved one dies, we know that God will raise the dead. When we think of our own death, death isn't the worst thing that can happen to us because God will raise us from the dead. I'm concerned, though, that many Christians navigate the world isolating the logic of the resurrection either to martyrdom or natural death. When in reality, the whole letter of Romans shows us that the logic of the resurrection, the gospel, is actually for every single moment of our lives. I, I want to fill that out for you. But the logic is that to truly live, we've got to die first. And it doesn't necessarily mean we must physically die first. There's a different kind of dying to our own life that's required of us day after day after day. Paul talks about this. Um, don't, don't pay attention to that slide. We're skipping that so we can get, get to the heart of what's going on here. Paul teaches that our baptisms are symbolically picturing, or for some Christians, they would say enacting, our unification with Christ and our participation in his resurrection. So to be a Christian, we're baptized, and we'll say something like, you're baptized into Christ's death, and you're raised to newness of life. That, that's what baptism is saying. So, so the very right of entry into the church is something that communicates you are now going to be the kind of person who dies with Christ and now lives in a different way, with a different kind of life. That, that's ingrained in the very practice of identifying as a Christian. But Paul goes deeper with it. He, he explains that we have been united with Christ, and to be connected to Jesus by believing the gospel is to be united with him in his death, so that we'll be in the likeness of his resurrection as well. But not just in the future, like after you physically die, but in your day-to-day -day moments where you die to sin and to self and experience the resurrection life of Christ. Okay, keep, keep tracking with me because it's going to become progressively clear. I'm, I'm just trying to show you that this is something that pops up again and again in Romans. Paul does not want us to limit our notion that the resurrection is only good for martyrdom or natural death. He makes that clear at the start of Romans 12. Okay, so he's not going to use the term death, but the instruction that he's going to give us here can only make sense because of the logic of the resurrection. That if we embrace death with Christ, that we'll find new life. Here it is. 
in Romans 12, 1. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. How does that make sense? How is that rational without the logic of the resurrection? How can we, day after day, die to ourselves if there's not the promise of new life secured by the resurrection of Christ? We can't. But Paul calls us, if we're going to live as a community of faith and live like Jesus, to embrace the logic of the resurrection day after day after day. And the promise is that if you do this, you'll experience fullness of life. Okay, so... So that's Paul's message. Now, how does this connect to life together, difference, disharmony, finding love for one another? Um, here's the first step that way. Becoming a living sacrifice involves conforming our minds to the thinking of Christ instead of the thinking of this age. That's what Romans 12, 2 says. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think what Paul is trying to say is, look, the world around you, this present age says, don't die to yourself. Grab onto everything that you can. Live life wholly for you, and that will be your best life. Paul says, don't think the way that everyone else is thinking. Instead, adopt the new mind, the thinking of Christ that's driven by the logic of the resurrection, which says to really live, you must die first. You must sacrifice yourself. Okay, so, so there's an aspect of this that's simply conforming to the thinking of Christ. Second, involved in living as a sacrifice is participating in the Christian community. That's why in the next verses, in verses 3 through 7, or 3 through 8, Paul talks about serving in different ways in the Christian community. So if you want to know what it means to be a living sacrifice, it means orienting your life primarily to serve others instead of serving yourself. And you will live a more full life that way. Our world tells us, no, live to be served. Don't live to serve. But if you want to really live, Paul is saying, the logic of the resurrection teaches us we live to serve and not to be served. The third piece that then we add to this is the piece of Christian ethics, especially the love command. So I won't read all of the verses for you, but starting in 12.9 and going down, Paul lays out a way of life that radically demands self-sacrifice. You can't be concerned most about yourself and fulfill what Paul says in these verses. You can't love without hypocrisy. You can't detest evil. You can't take the lead in honoring one another. You can't pursue hospitality. You, you cannot defeat evil. You cannot do any of these things unless you're sacrificing yourself daily. And unless you're saying life is not about me, instead I live for God and other people. It's only when you die to yourself that you can accomplish these things. But when you read that section, it gives a vision of life that's deeply fulfilling, that's deeply meaningful. I think we all know this by our experiences. Think of yourself when you're at your most selfish. When, when you're at your most demanding of other people. Is that a fulfilling life? Is that meaningful? I, I think it's really empty. 
but it's really easy, so we do it all the time. Paul wants us to give ourselves a, a living sacrifice in, in these ways. Okay, so, so review, the logic of the resurrection is like the formula for the solution to the problem. These are elements of what it looks like to participate in the logic of the resurrection. Um, now I want to talk about, well, what, what do I do now? Okay, so, so if this is a formula and these are elements of it, how does this relate to our church when we might face division? How does it relate to me in my relationships with other people? To talk first about within like this church gathering. And in our life, it's a community. How do we participate in Christ's resurrection? How do we order our life according to the logic of the resurrection? I want to say that you should start by reflecting on and valuing your baptism. Reflect on and value your baptism. Read Romans chapter 6, where Paul describes how in your baptism, you were buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. Think about your baptism as the jersey that declares you're a Christian and gives you a certain way to live. It's not magical, but it is truly identifying. It, it's a public declaration of I have died and have raised, been raised with Christ. So I'm a different kind of person. So reflect on and value your baptism. Second, love other church members, especially those who are different from you. Work to love and understand other church members, especially those who are different from you. Our, our natural inclination is always to group like with like. Um, shared interests with shared interests. And, and what that results in is a lack of relationship with people who are different with us. And then that just encourages misunderstanding and judgmentalism and unwelcomingness towards those same people. We don't naturally spend a lot of time with people who don't think like us and who go about their lives in different ways than us. And on one level, I want to say that's natural and that's okay. You'll, you'll have some deep friendships with people who are very much like you. But as part of the Christian community, we're called to love everyone else here, and that involves spending time with them. It involves getting to know them and seeking to understand them. We try to do this in our home groups. That's why we don't have families sign up to join whatever home group they want, or we'd end up with home groups of people who are just like each other. I, I, I think it's good for us to be in home groups with people who think differently than us, who practice their, the outworking of their Christian faith in ways that are different from us. We try to do this in our Bible studies, in our gatherings here, in our work days. We try to sort of force you to get with people who aren't like you. But I'd encourage you to pursue that outside of the organized activities of our church as well. Third, Participating in the logic of the resurrection will involve serving others according to your gifting and ability. You can't do everything, and you shouldn't feel guilty if you're not doing everything. You can't do everything because you're not Christ, you're not God, you're limited. But Paul, connecting to this notion of being a living sacrifice, emphasizes the many gifts in the one body, and he orients all of us to live a life of service. This, I would say, I see every week 
from so many in our church. I, I see it in formal ways with a high percentage of members who are doing things on the platform, reading scripture, participating in nursery. I, I see this all the time. And I am so, so grateful for that. And I want to encourage you, especially those of you who are doing this so often and are feeling tired, um, that this is Christianity. It's not living for us, but living for others. And certainly we need breaks at times. We need to be able to have some margin to recover. But ultimately, I want to encourage you that living with an orientation of service is cultivating a deep and meaningful and fulfilling life that being a spectator on a Sunday could never do. And this is true for the rest of our lives in every area. As a family member, if you live in your family primarily as a consumer instead of a server, your family life will not be rich and fulfilling. If you and your job are just a slouch instead of a server, you might keep getting that monthly paycheck, but you're going to be living a soulless life in a soulless job. This is the logic of the resurrection that flows everywhere. We participate in Christ's resurrection by participating in service. They'll bring life, but they involve a radical death, and it's not easy. It's not romantic. It's not heroic. It's monotonous and painful. It's a daily call. So I said I, I want to talk about what that would look like for us as a church, but I think we have to also consider what it means for us individually as, as we look at ourselves, because many of us get in our own way. We, we can't even present ourselves as a living sacrifice because we're so caught up on things that we need to die to that are really hard to die to. I want to point out three prominent ones by, that I observe regularly, or, or maybe I just experience it myself regularly. So maybe I'm mostly talking to me, but I think that this is true for many of us. To become a living sacrifice, every one of us has to die to protecting our self-image to really become a sacrifice, to really give up on our grasp of our own life, to really give ourselves over to Jesus, we have to die to protecting our self-image. Most of us like to be looked at in a particular way. Most of us like to look like we've got it all together, that we're the best parent or the best spouse or a good worker. We, we don't like to admit weakness or failing or foibles. So we go about protecting our self-image and written into the fabric of protecting your self-image is an inability to ever repent or connect deeply with another person. An inability to serve others. As long as we are so focused on presenting ourselves in a particular way to other people, we can't do what Paul is instructing us to do and we won't experience resurrection life. For some of us, this means that we need to stop posturing on our social media. For some of us, this means in our home groups or small group or one-on-one, -on -one, we need to enlist other people in our fight against sin that we're actually losing, but we're pretending we're winning. For some of us, this means just asking God to help us not focus on what other people are thinking of me every time I walk into a room and instead focus on how I can serve them and love them and give myself to them and trust that Christ will bring a full flourishing relationship out of that encounter. 
So we need to die to protecting our self-image. We also need to die to protecting ourselves with cynicism, sarcasm, and pessimism. So many of us navigate our lives and relationships with this protective shield of pessimism and cynicism and sarcasm that won't ever let anyone in, that, that won't let us actually talk about real things with people. So when someone compliments us, instead of us engaging in a relationship, we deflect it with sarcasm. When someone tries to do something kind and as they try to serve us, we become cynical. When we're given a vision of what Christianity could look like, we become pessimistic because we've seen bad editions of Christianity over and over and over again. If we're going to engage in a resurrection way of life, we have to die to protecting ourselves with cynicism, sarcasm, and pessimism. Finally, we all have to die to insisting on our own way. We have to die to insisting on our own way. Dying to insisting on our own way is not glamorous. It's not the stuff that um, gets posted on social media. It's not the stuff that we probably want to do ever. But the way that I see it is it's honestly the way to live as a Christian is to day after day die to insisting on our own ways, to prefer the interests of others over ourselves. As we die to these things, we can finally position ourselves to embrace the life that God intends for us, to embrace life with other people, to embrace the resurrection life of Christ. For truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Father, would you help us die to ourselves so that we can experience the fullness of resurrection life? Would you allow us to tie into the logic of the resurrection that promises life after self-sacrifice, after living sacrifice? Would you enable us to do this and would you truly give us those joys of life as we live in a Christ-like way? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.